Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN. That, of course, is the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is Monday, May 21, 2012. This is episode 905 of the Survival Podcast as we march on toward episode 1000. I put out a post on Friday. I'll link to it from today's show notes as well of how you can participate and show number 1000 either by sending me your pictures for the Revolution is U 2.0 video or by calling in your testimonials for episode 1000 or both. Please partake in that. Uh, this audience is awesome and I want episode 1000 to basically be what I did before when I've done this. Hey folks, this is Jack. We're on episode 1000 and here's the audience and this is what 1000 episodes of the Survival Podcast has, has done in our community and just shut up and let you guys talk. And I want it to run for two hours, maybe more. Last time it went for an hour and 44 minutes of, you know, two, three minute testimonials. And I'm giving you guys three minutes on your testimonials, by the way, so you don't have to rush them. I don't think most people will actually use it, but I am setting the, uh, the timer, uh, for two minutes for you guys. I'm sorry, for three full minutes for you guys. Yeah, you get a full three minutes. I also realized something. I had a little pause right there if I sounded uh, discombobulated. Uh, when I set that number up, I never put a personal greeting on it. I'm sure some of you guys called over the weekend and just got the, the you know, the uh, default chick message, which is like, leave your message at the tone and not sure you had the right number. So I've just changed the personal greeting. So when you call, you'll hear me. The number for the episode 1000 testimonials is not the think line for the call-in shows. It's got its own special number. I set up just to do this. It is 866-691-5353. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping before we get into the main part of today's show. Of course, today's Monday listener feedback show. These are your emails sent to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my real email. Uh, anything you want to send me, that's the best way to get it to me. I may or may not actually respond depending on email volume and what you send me and all that good stuff, but... You want me to consider it for the show? Put article for Jack or question for Jack or comment for Jack or video for Jack or something like that. Story for Jack in the subject line. Use three words with for Jack as the second two words. It'll get screened and looked at for the show. Uh, before we get into your emails, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. How do you become the original sponsor? Well, only one company can be that. And they are that, and no one else can ever be it because you have to be first. That's who Safe Castle Royal is. They were the first company that ever stepped up and said, we want to formalize our relationship and become an official sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Uh, we're going into our fourth year now. They've been with us for about three of those, uh, actually three and a half of four years. So they've been around about as long as is possible. In fact, as long as is possible. And there's a reason. Because they take good care of the customers, and because they have really cool stuff, and because they also build hardened shelters, and because they're awesome. That's why. Check them out today at prepared.pro. Again, prepared.pro is their website. Click on their banner on our website. is probably the best way to find them and all our sponsors. Make sure you're dealing with a real survival podcast sponsor and not some brand pirate because those guys are out there, folks. Safe Castle Royal, of course, also has a $49 one-time discount membership club. You join that. You get discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But if you're a member, Support Brigade member, guess what? You get it for free. So they're such a great sponsor that they basically make your first year of Members Brigade a dollar by giving you their $49 product for free the day you sign up. How cool is that? Next up, backyard food production. Hey, you want to feed yourself? You want to turn your backyard into a food production machine? Check out BackyardFoodProduction.com and Marjorie Wildcraft will show you how to do just that. Uh, they are largely self-sufficient on their place down south of Austin. It's not their easiest climate to grow in either, folks. What works for her will work for you. Check them out today. BackyardFoodProduction.com Next up, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you go by the Facebook fan page today, you'll see that I'm taking questions for a Jeff Lawton interview I'll be doing at 3 p.m. If you weren't my Facebook fan, then you probably didn't get that until just now, and maybe you're listening to this at 4 o'clock and I've already done the interview and it's too late to ask a question. Just one example of why you should follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Next up, check out TSPCopper.com for some really cool copper rounds. I'll leave it at that today. 
Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And I'm going to leave it at that today. There we go. We're done with the house game because I want to get into our first item of the day, and it's not really an email. It's the If I Wanted to Save America contest. Um, voting has begun. I did a end of an episode where I just kind of got fired up and responded to If I Wanted America to Fail, a viral video that got millions of views, went all over the place, and I had tons of people send it to me, and it was so depressing. I didn't really want to play it on the air. But so many people were sending it. I'm like, I have to put this on the air. And if I wanted to save America was my response to it, which I believe has a lot more solution orientation. People loved it. People were like, it's got to go on YouTube. I didn't have time to make a video. So I said, if you want to make a video, do it. And the winner, I'll give 100 bucks, and we'll do a contest. So anybody can make a video, and we'll vote on them. Three people entered. There's a poll now on the forum. I'll put a link in today's show notes. If you're not a forum member, you do have to join the forum uh, to vote. But it won't, you know, it takes a couple seconds to join the forum. Uh, and uh, once you join and you activate your account, you can vote. And those that are already on the forum, and you should be, you can just go ahead and vote. And that'll run. And Monday next week, I'll announce the winner. The winner gets a hundred bucks, and I donate a hundred dollars to Bella Medical Ministries in the winner's name as well. So that should be really cool. And um, the videos that have been entered, all three of them are amazing in their own ways. And uh, again, I won't tell you my favorite, but voting begins today. Vote early, vote once. You only get to vote one time, and you only get to pick one winner. You can change your vote in the poll, so if you change your mind, you can change your vote, uh, but you cannot vote for your favorite two or something like that. We want a clear winner here, and uh, when we get that winner next week, then we're going to set up a day that we're going to have that user republish their video as a public video because they're private now. You can only see them with the link on the forum. And then we're going to all get behind it, send it to our friends, our families, put it on Facebook, do everything we can to try to get this video to catch fire. And, uh, you know, the, the depressing version, which was very accurate, caught fire. I'd rather have this version, not feeding my own ego or anything, but this version that's solution-oriented uh, catch fire. And I'd like to reach, you know, several thousand new people. If we reach several thousand new people that actually hear and understand the message, It'll be a huge success in my vision. Uh, so let's uh, let's work hard on that one together. So please vote this week uh, for your favorite video. Uh, I probably won't be talking about it all week long as, as like an intro segment. I just might mention it real brief in the housekeeping. So today I've explained it. Please vote. Uh, it would mean a lot to me to get a ton of votes on this so we truly get the community's opinion about which one of these is best. I know the one I like best. But I'm not the one that makes that choice. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take your first email today. So the first question I have today comes from Dean, and it's, it's a pretty good one. It's nice and short the way I like them, getting to the point. Uh, Jack, do you think it's better to have one large family bug-out bag, a common item bug-out bag with supplemental bags for each family member, and adding in get-home bags, or separate and complete bobs for each family member? I can see pluses and minuses for each. What are your thoughts? This is what I think. Uh, down to kids. Everybody should have their own bug out bag. Each one of those bags should be able to provide the absolute necessities, not every single thing you'd like to have because you wouldn't be able to lift it. The absolute necessities for each individual for three days. That's three days worth of food. You probably ain't going to be carrying three days of water in a bug out bag, especially for the kids, but you can carry some. You can carry the means to purify more. Uh, and each bag should have enough means to purify more water. And, and generally, we're looking at chemical purification there uh, and fire-making capabilities uh, and some type of a container to boil things in. Now, if you don't want your kids with matches, then you can remove them from their bag, but I would strongly advise you not to do that. I would you know, put some watertight matches in a, a pill bottle that's hard for a young kid to open and say, you know, we don't go in here unless we need to. Put a little uh, packet together. This is the stuff you don't ever touch unless you're with mom and dad or as they get older unless you absolutely need it and teach them how. This is why. You don't know who's going to be where when things go wrong, and people's bug-out bags should be where they are. Now, this doesn't work for school. I understand that. So the kids, when they're in school, but they should be, if the, if the car is going to be delivering Johnny to Taekwondo, then Johnny's bug-out bag should be in the car. 
If the car is going to pick Johnny up from school, then Johnny's bug out bag should be in the car until you get home, and then it should probably be in the house. And I know it's a pain in the butt to take them back and forth, but it's probably a better idea. I don't fault people for leave them in, leaving them in vehicles, though, and that's often happened that I do it myself. But and, and part of that is where I am, my vehicle generally is, and it's easier to not forget it that way. So in a perfect world, we would all be perfect, and we would all keep it with us at all times. It would be in our locker at work it would be in our car when we're in our car it would be with us in a restaurant when we're in a restaurant it's just not practical but as close as possible to the individual is where the individual's bag should be this is you know i've done whole episodes on really macking out a bug out bag but when we get down to the basics food water some basic medical supplies uh some basic entertainment items and comfort items and uh, some change of clothes and that's an absolute minimum And that's, that should be for everybody. Now, a supplemental bag. Let's talk about a supplemental bag. We're looking more at like a, a large vehicle kit, something that nobody's going to be throwing on their back and going anywhere with. That's a great thing to have. But none of the critical items should be there other than for redundancy purposes. So we can have a big kit, a big vehicle kit bag. And that we might have one in, you know, two of them and one in each vehicle. And that's probably not a bad idea either. But, I think that when you decide that we're going to have like just this one big bag that's going to have like stuff for everybody in it, and that way we can, you know, pare down our bug out bags to, to, to complete bare bones, or that the kids aren't going to have one, or only dad's going to have one, I think we're making a big mistake. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge enough to do three to four pairs of socks, at least one extra pair of pants and shorts, something for cold weather. Three or four T-shirts in a bag for one person, plus food for that person in a bag. That's that is the bulk of the weight and size that goes into most bug out bags if they're done properly. If not, what you end up with is a whole crapload of stuff you're not likely to use instead of the food and the water and the clothing that you're going to need if you ever end up displaced. I mean, those are the big things. Means of communication would be great. Some type of radio. There's all these nice-to-haves, and they should end up in there too. But the, the stuff that takes up the biggest space is a full set of clothing for three days and food for three days. It's, it's bulky, even if we do what's called field stripping and MRE. For those of you who have never field stripped an MRE or don't know what the hell I'm talking about, uh, if you're using MREs in your bug-out bag, you should learn what field stripping is. And I have a great video for you on it from Brian Black at ITS Tactical. I'll link from it in today's show notes. But definitely I think that on at least the fundamental needs of a bug out bag, every family member should have one. Now, really little kids, you can carry some of their stuff for them in yours because their stuff takes up less room. They eat less, right, and their clothes are smaller. Once they're big enough to bring that backpack to school, they're big enough to have their own bug out bag. If your kids go to school with three or four books in a backpack – Hanging off of their little backs, they're big enough to have their own extra backpack for their bug out bag. Now, it's probably not anywhere near the size and scope of mom and dad's, but it's a good idea. And I, I know it's cute, and I've seen some of you guys do it where you have your kids, where's your bug out bag, honey? And they have like a couple toys in there and a pocket knife. Don't do that crap. Don't do that crap. Because they might actually need the damn thing. Build it for them. Make them part of it. Make it fun, yes. But don't let them have a bug out bag that's useless. I'm serious, man. Don't do that. And I've seen some of you, and I, you know, your little videos and all. And the kids are cute. And I'm hoping those of you who I've seen do it, like, okay, that's that's what he thinks his bug out bag is, and we've got his real bug out bag over here. If that's the case, that's fine. That really is, especially when they're that age where you know, you know, and they have their their little, you know toys in there and stuff. That's that's fine. Uh, and a little bit of practicality that that that's okay. But if that if they don't have a real one somewhere, you, you're leaving a hole in your plant. Um, for all of us, no matter how good our plan to stay put is, to, to, to shelter in place is, there could come a time when we have to leave. If there's a forest fire and it's going to burn your house down, you got to go. You got to go. And you got to be able to grab the essentials and go fast. That's what bug out bags are all about. Let's take another email. This one's just kind of a bit of listener feedback. I like to share these little stories every once in a while. This comes from Julie. Julie says, 
I just wanted to drop you a line and say thank you for having such a practical podcast. My husband's been asking me to listen to your podcast for at least a year now, but I just couldn't get into something with survival in the name. The few times he had me listen to Glenn Beck drove me nuts. All complaints and no solutions. Now he was listening to some kind of extreme survival junk. No thank you. We live in Michigan for about six years where I did a lot of gardening. I love my homegrown veggies and all the time outdoors in the evening after spending hours in an office all day. However, when we moved to Yuma, Arizona, it's beautiful. It's alien in kind of a way. I'll attach a photo for you, but our highs are over 100 for six months out of the year. We often have winters without a frost. It's a dry, dry desert. So I gave up on gardening and focused on growing babies instead. Fast forward four years. We have two great boys, and we love to go camping whenever we can get out of town. Recently, my husband has started growing heat-loving veggies on his own, but of course I couldn't resist for long. So he started reading up on permaculture, and that's how he got me listening to your podcast. After listening to the gardening-related podcasts and watching some of your videos, I was hooked. I started listening to all your podcasts and realized I've been trusting the government and getting burned for years. I love the practical nature of your podcast. I almost always walk away with some ideas of things to actually do, and it's refreshing. Most people just complain. We're changing our expectations and baby stepping our way into less reliance on the government. Thanks, man. Keep up the good work, Julie. Well, thank you, Julie, for having an open mind and getting over the big giant survival hurdle. It's always amazed me. And I know what it is. It's what the media has done with the word. But people are turned off by survival. Let me tell you what the opposite, the antonym for survival is. Death. Right? So if you don't like survival, you like death. And there's something to that that's beyond the absolute states, right? So we have survival in its purest form means to wake up breathing tomorrow, and the opposite, death, means to not wake up breathing tomorrow. Those are our two choices. But in our daily lives, don't we all either survive or die a little bit each day? Do we either thrive a little bit or die a little bit? And what Julie's now done is awaken to a world where she can continue to grow as a person because you're not waiting on something that ain't coming. Think about it this way. A lot of us in life are like this little boy. And a little boy has been told by, let's say, a dirty, rotten father or uncle that never shows up, Tuesday, Johnny, I'm going to come pick you up off the curb, take you fishing. So on Tuesday, Johnny wakes up. It's a summer day, so he doesn't have to go to school. He gets up way earlier than he normally does. He eats his breakfast cereal, eats every bite in his toast and butter, and mom knows that the dirty, rotten uncle or, or you know, deadbeat dad isn't coming to get him. And she wants to tell him, but she just feels maybe, maybe he'll show up too. She says, okay, get ready and be careful, and he sits out on the curb. And 8 o'clock comes and doesn't show up. 9 o'clock comes and... Uh, the, the dad or the uncle or whatever doesn't show up at 10 o'clock. He's supposed to be there at 8. It's now 2, two o'clock in the afternoon, and little Johnny's still looking up and down the road. And every time he hears a car, he looks. Maybe it's 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 it's, it's not. Now, eventually, because this is a cut-and-dry situation, Johnny realizes that the deadbeat uncle or father's not coming, and he goes on about his life. But while he sat there on the curb, he wasted part of his little life. Because he was waiting on something that was never going to happen. He probably could have walked to a creek somewhere and went fishing by himself and actually enjoyed his time and said, Mom, if he shows up, tell him I'm over here and I'll be happy to, uh, to, be, to be going with him when he gets here, but I'm not going to wait. See, and this is, I know you're going, how do we get there from here? Well, this is what most people are doing with government. You're, you're voting and waiting and hoping that someday it will all get better. And if we just get rid of those damn Republicans or just, just those damn Democrats or whichever one it is for you, you think that everything will be okay, that daddy will come and take you fishing. Daddy's not coming. Take yourself fishing. Get on living your life. The, 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 the one that made me read this, I started listening to all your podcasts and realized that I've been trusting government and getting burned for years. They're not going to fix it. They can't fix it. They have no interest in fixing it. You can't fix it using their system to fix it because their system broke it. The, the, the whole system and the group of systems that are supposed to function for humanity is like a giant pile of china dishes, right? And government is a hammer. 
and there's a big giant sledgehammer, like you know, like a one, two, three pound sledge, like a small sledgehammer, and a great big ball peen hammer. One says D and one says R, and they keep breaking shit with the hammer. And we, as a bunch of dumbasses, think we're gonna use the hammer to put the china back together. We either need to get new china or break out the super glue. But we can't use the hammer that broke the system to fix the system. So what do we do in our lives? We get up off the curb, we stop waiting for daddy or uncle jerkface, and we take ourselves fishing. Physically, you know, metaphorically or realistically. Go fishing. Good. You'll have fun. You'll feed yourself. You'll learn a skill. It'll be great. Don't wait for Uncle Sam to take you. He's not going to do it. Plant a garden. Store your own food. Take responsibility for your family. Teach your children the skills that you were never taught, which means you have to seek out ways to learn them so that you can teach them. Think about all the times as a kid you sat waiting to learn something that never came. What was that thing? Go learn it. Teach it to the next generation. There's an American dream that's summed up this way. Each generation dreams that the next generation will have more than we did. And we got freaking stupid for a while. We got freaking stupid, folks. We lost what that really meant. In the early days, it meant having real wealth. And we turned it in the 60s and 70s into having things and stuff and money, which was one little piece of it. In the original dream. And we lost the skills and the knowledge and the community. If you want the next generation to have more than we do, you have to stop thinking in things and college degrees and financing and housing and all this other crap and start thinking in meaning and worth and independence and liberty. That's the next generation's better. Government can't do it. Uncle Sam isn't coming, kid. Get up off the curb. Take yourself fishing. Stop waiting for someone that's not coming. Great piece of feedback, Julie. Thank you. Now, speaking of the government trying to fix things with the same mentality that broke them in the first place, this is one of those ones I have to put on the air because, oh, since uh, Friday, about 14 billion of these came to me. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I would say about 40 of you emailed me different versions of this story. And it's on by Reuters, it's on Yahoo Finance, and the subject line reads, China cries foul after U.S. sets tariffs on solar imports. Let me read a little bit of the article to you, and I'll tell you what's not being said in the article and what we actually should be looking at. This is an example of two sides of the coin both trying to use the hammer to fix the broken solar panel industry. Let's listen here. By Matt Daly and Lenora Wallet, Reuters. The United States imposed punitive tariffs on solar panel imports from China, the latest in a series of trade disputes between the world's two biggest economies, and sparking accusations by Beijing of protectionism. Notice the, the, the word there that everybody will just gloss over. The world's two biggest economies. And one is bigger than the other, and that is fixing to change, and no one really seems to get the repercussions of that. But... They wouldn't have used two biggest economies not that long ago. China's on the march, guys. They're growing. Back to the article. The new tariffs of around 30%, much bigger than had been expected, were set on Thursday by the U.S. Commerce Department after it ruled in favor of local firms, which said Chinese exporters were dumping cut-price panels on their market. The size of the tariff is larger than Chinese companies had expected, and some analysts said it might prompt them to manufacture elsewhere or look for alternative markets. The U.S. decision lacks fairness, and China expresses its strong displeasure. A spokesman for China's Ministry of Commerce, Shen Dayang, said in a statement posted on the ministry's website, and then there's a link there, quote, by deliberately provoking trade friction in the clean energy sector, The U.S. is sending the world a negative signal about trade protectionism, Shen said. However, Beijing stopped short of threatening immediate retaliation. Quote, we believe these measures by the United States damage China-U.S. cooperation in the renewable and clean energy sectors. We hope the United States can appropriately resolve the relevant issues and take practical steps to respond to China's demands. 
Oh, screw you, China, and your demands. That's that's from me, guys. So you don't get your demand. You don't demand something of another nation when you're a nation. Oh, wait, we do that all the time, don't we? Yeah, that's probably wrong of us, too, though. huh? Foreign Ministry spokesman Hong Lee said, Okay, let me stop there. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I will, of course, include it in today's show notes. Most of you emailing this are saying, look, the government doesn't want us to have affordable solar panels. They're jacking up the price of solar panels because the Chinese are making them cheap. Of course, the U.S. manufacturers are saying, they're dumping, listen to the language, they're dumping cut-rate panels in our market. How dare they? This is capitalism. Don't they know that we own, this is our market. It's it's a free market that we own. And we want you, government, to stop. That's the free trade side of this. But this is a question no one asks. And this is where you just want to take a ballpoint pen, put it to the little dent in your temple, and shove really hard till it goes in your brain and ends this madness and makes you just go, I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. And then you realize, take yourself fishing, have a, have, have, you know, have a, a glass of iced tea and enjoy life because these idiots are going to do this anyway. But here's my question for you. Instead, instead of saying, hey, you know what, let's make the China panel more expensive, instead of doing that, what say that we look at what makes the dadgone ones in America so freaking expensive comparatively? Is it because Americans that build solar panels make billions of dollars? No. That's not that. Is it because the government doesn't subsidize the industry? No, because the government subsidizes the shit out of the industry. Hmm... Why don't more people manufacture solar products in the United States? Hmm. I think it's because it's almost impossible to grow the frickin' silicon here due to environmental protection regulations, which are being used to do what? They say that it's reducing carbon. Yep. We gotta have carbon reductions. So this nasty business of growing silicon is dirty because it makes a lot of CO2. But we want the solar panels, so we put them up there, and then they use the sun, and they make electricity, and then we'll we'll burn less fossil fuels if we have the solar panels. But we need to grow the silicon with the solar panel, and no, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make it really expensive for you to do that here. So what if instead of letting China just grow their freaking silicon the way that they do, and they just say, you know what, we're making a solar panel, we don't give a damn if it produces a little CO2 because we're looking at the long haul here out of these panels. What if we got those things out of the way? And do the U.S. companies making solar panels really need any more help? Didn't, didn't the Obama administration give these idiots billions of dollars that they lost of, and pissed away of the American people's money? So, so maybe we don't need to be telling China that their prices are cut rate prices. Maybe we need to figure out how they're efficiently doing what they're doing. And don't give me the nonsense, well, little Chinese kid that's 12 years old is making 32 cents an hour. And that, that's not really how they do it, folks. It's the labor costs are so small compared to the total production costs in, in this industry. There's a lot of automation. There's a lot of machinery in this industry. There's a lot of efficiency in this industry. There's a lot of hurdles in this industry to acquiring the materials. Think about it. I don't care what the labor cost to produce a 250-watt panel is. The Chinese have to put it on a ship and send it all the way to America to sell it here. And they have to pay tariffs because they already had one before this. And then they still have to compete on price and they still win. Why? It's not because of the little kid that works for a slave wage. That's a lie being told to you. It's because they're more efficient at what they do and they have less things in the way to prevent the companies building them from doing it. In many ways... China is more of a capitalist country today than America is. And it's moving, it, it's still got a lot of socialism, folks, don't get me wrong. Still got a lot of government oppression, but it's moving one way, and this nation, which was the bastion of everything they're moving towards, is moving the other way. Why do you think you're seeing this inverse relationship? Less liberty, less productivity in America. More liberty, more productivity in China. I know that sounds like an anti-American message, folks. Remember, I want to save this country. It's not an anti-American message. It's an anti-government regulation message. Stop thinking that every time that somebody tells you something negative about your country, that it's about you or your neighbor or the average Joe, six-pack or plumber. It's not. It's about the clowns running the show. And it's about the, 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 the way they do this. And let me tell you what, let me tell you what now. 
This isn't going to do anything. Because what they'll end up doing is putting more regulation on U.S. business that will wipe out the tariffs so that they get more money from both sides, and then they'll piss that money away on nothing as well. And the only person that suffers in all of this is the American worker and the American consumer. You know what? If China can produce a thousand watt solar panel someday for 50 bucks, God bless them, send them over here and we'll use the energy produced to grow the country anyway. Right? The energy is the key here. The energy is the thing, folks, not, not who builds the panel. How many Americans would be employed if China could build a 500 watt solar panel for a hundred bucks? If we could do that, 500 watt panel for 100 bucks, solar becomes a real viable thing in America, doesn't it? And then most people, will most people climb up on their roofs and bolt panels and figure out the aspect and put in tracking? Will they do that or would they hire somebody to do that? And when they hire somebody to do that, what do we create? We create a service sector growth. Do you think that the people installing the panels are going to sell them for the same price they bought them from Hong Kong or Beijing for? Or do you think they're going to add something called margin to make a profit, which is actually not an evil word, and it's how a capital system runs? So then we've got the business of importing, the business of delivering, the business of installing, the business of maintaining, the business of replacing, the business of upgrading, and all the power that comes out. But we want to tax the energy source itself. I don't care where the energy comes from. There's enough taxes. They don't need more. And if you think China is going to pay this tax, you're wrong. You're going to pay it. You're going to pay it when you buy the, the, you know, the Hitachi solar panel. You're going to pay it. Well, why don't we buy what's made in America? Give me a good alternative, folks, from the solar panel industry. And I'm not blaming the companies. Blaming the regulations that are in their way. I'm just saying, new way to look at things. Please start trying to do that. Here's an interesting one. I'll answer it. If anybody knows that I am wrong, then you can uh, you can point out the error in my my judgment here. But I'm going to answer the question best as I can right now. It comes from Chip. Chip says, "Hi, Jack. You recently answered a question about credit unions versus banks. I'm curious. Do all credit unions still operate under the fractional reserve system, creating money when they make loans, or just like banks, or are there some that actually loan out only real money they have taken in as deposits?" If there are some that do not use fractional reserve, seems like it might be a good idea to give our business to them. Chip, um, the answer is no. Of course, any any financial institution out there in the business of lending money today is operating under fractional reserve, primarily because that's the system we're in. You're not going to not have fractional reserve lending in a system that requires fractional reserve lending for lending to, to basically happen. And one thing we need to understand is that fractional reserve in of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It's the the, the ten to one ratio. Uh, you know, the, they only have to have a ten percent reserve uh, held on hand. Any bank is going to be in a, a a somewhat fractional situation, one way or the other. Um, if you come to me and you put a thousand dollars in a savings account, and I'm a bank and I'm in the business of loaning out money. Uh, and I loan uh, your friend $500. If I actually take your money and give it to him and you come back and want your thousand bucks, I can't cover it. So I'm only going to have a fraction of what you deposited in reserve, right? So that's, that's the core to it. That's the core. I take your money and loan it out. The problem today is that banks are, are allowed to create money through fractional reserve. Which means that I don't even give the guy your 500 bucks. I literally create money out of thin air when I issue the loan. I have the ability if I am sitting on, um, let's say a hundred thousand dollars, not the ability to loan out nine hundred or ninety thousand dollars or ninety percent holding ten percent in reserve which would be one way of looking at the equation, with $100,000 in, in deposits, I can loan out, guess how much? $900,000 in loans. Think about it that way, right? So one way to handle a reserve banking situation is I have to hold reserves and use the money. The other way is that I have to hold reserves and create the money. This is the way things are done today, and most credit unions would operate the same way. 
The problem with a reserve bank, if we say we're going to keep a fraction in reserve and not print money, actually loan the money that's deposited, which is what people want done, is it will contract the currency supply. You have to have lots of money to make that work. So either the banks create the money, or we dig a lot of gold out of the ground if we're on a gold standard, or if we're on some sort of a public currency that's a true fiat currency. The government actually creates real money, like the greenback, that's backed by the true faith and credit of the country, that maybe is backed by some portion gold, some kind of commodity basket currency. Any of these systems, we have to have lots of dollars, or we have to have a very, very strong dollar. Those are our two choices. We either have to have a dollar that's so strong that a dollar, you know, puts half a tank of gas in your car, or we have to have lots of dollars. People say, well, what's wrong with a strong dollar? Not really very much. What's wrong with having lots of dollars? Not really very much. It's not, it's, this is what people don't get about the whole thing with inflation and deflation. If we stayed right where we're at right now and just said, that's it, we're done, then the only way we're going to increase the, the volume of currency in this country is if more people live here. So we'll get a body count increase. That's it. When there's more people, we need more dollars to go into more hands and more pockets. If we did that, it would be okay. It doesn't even really matter how the money got here in the first place. It would create stability in the value of the currency. The dollar would find an equilibrium. It would come to a point where it would balance out And it would probably throw itself up and down and up and down wildly and people would freak out. And Do you have the nuts, folks, is the thing. Do you have the balls to ride it out? And if you did, you'd get to the other side. And there'd be panic everywhere while it did these fluctuations up and down, which happens all the time anyway. But they would say, look, see what happened? We, we came to this stable currency and now look, it's not stable at all. Because they would be afraid that you would understand what was really going on and let it happen. And then once it did equalize itself out, a dollar would buy you five years from now pretty much the same thing a dollar would buy you today. Now, there would be ups and downs in the supply and demand curve. right? When an item's in high supply and low demand, it's cheap. When it's in low supply and high demand, it's expensive. But those are, those are the laws of economics that they use to explain to you why prices go up. And that's not why prices go up. Prices go up because the value of money goes down. Supply-demand curves always reach a state where they come back down and equalize and normalize. If you don't believe that, look at the price of flat-screen televisions. right? Look at the price of video game consoles. Look at the price of iPhones. Look at the price of anything that went through that curve. They are really, really heavy demand. They go up way, way, way up in price. They come down. Competition takes over. There's a market. There's a demand. People compete, and it flattens out at levels. It's basic economic theory. When we continue to screw around with the volume of the currency, though, we keep bringing it way up and contracting it way back down through credit default. When we have credit default, the currency contracts. When we have heavy lending, the currency expands. Right? We keep doing that with the supply. It's this elasticity that they say is good for the economy. That elasticity creates instability. Instability creates risk. I can't put my money in the mattress anymore. I have to risk the money. I have to earn interest that exceeds the inflation rate. If inflation's two and I make two, I break even. If inflation is 10 and I make two, I lose eight. So we create that mentality and we create a consumer economy and then people go crazy and they buy crap that they don't need and we end up in all these problems. And yes, your credit union's doing the same thing because they operate in a system where that's how you loan money today. It's not even a really a, a, a choice, honestly. If you're in this economy and you're in the banking business, whether you're a bank or a credit union, even though they operate differently on some levels, when it comes to the, the mechanics of monetary lending, you're going to do it the same way. Now, could a credit union say, we're not going to operate at a 10% reserve? We think that's, that's it's irresponsible. We're going to operate at a 50% reserve. Sure they can. They'll have less money to loan, though. And they'll be competing in a market with institutions that have more money to loan because they're allowing themselves for greater creation. Uh, let me put it to you this way. A, cell, a CB radio is limited by the government to 4 watts. And lots of people go out there and do illegal things and tweak them and get them up to 30 or put 1,000-watt amps on them or anything. But every manufacturer out there 
builds any CB that's capable based on the price point at 4 watts. If tomorrow the, the government said, you know, the 4 watts thing is kind of stupid, and it is, folks, it is. The, the, those of you in the ham world that hate CB radio because of the idiots out there that are doing things they're not supposed to, the, the, the guy pushing 50 watts in a peaked and tuned galaxy, he's not causing your problems. He's really not. Okay? So the government came out tomorrow and said, you know what, we can do 40 watts. 40 watts is fine. 40 watts, but we're going to be more strict in enforcement of these, these people that are breaking the rules with these thousand watt amps and these linear amps and all this stuff. And we're going to start cracking down on those. But we're going to let manufacturers build 40 watt, uh, drivers. Uh, how many CB radios one year later would be being manufactured at four watts? Do you need Jeopardy music or do you know the answer to be zero? And how many of them would be running 40? Ding, ding, ding. 100%, correct? Right? People would, I mean, because the electronics are there. There's no, there's no technology hurdle at all to this. It can be done like that fast. The boxes don't even have to change. Most of the boards don't even have to change. It's real easy to just change one component or just one component, push 40 watts. So, how, all of them would be there. So, if you create a lending environment where banks can lend 90% of what they hold with monetary creation being part of it, then they're going to do it. Now, if you told banks you can lend 90% of hard money, the money that's in your bank, and hold 10% reserve, a lot of banks wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. How do we understand that? Let's use something else instead of solar panels, or uh, CBs. Let's use solar panels to ex explain this. If today the government came out and said, uh, you can't build a solar panel that has greater capacity than 1 million watts. That's the limit. It wouldn't do anything to the market. There's no million-watt solar panel out there. It's ridiculous, right? And if they said, we're thinking about reducing it to half a million, it, it wouldn't do anything. And if they did it, because they actually think that they can pass a law and change reality, and they said, a half million watts, and then that's it. That's the biggest solar panel you could build. Not array, single panel, right? And then one day they, they got together and realized, this was stupid. We should have never limited it to half a million watts. Right? And they said, okay, now solar panel manufacturers, you can make million watt panels again. Again, it would change nothing. Right? Because the, there's a limitation on what the company can do. Right? If, if the government said, it's now legal, let's look at it another way, for you to shoot yourself in the head with a gun. It's legal. It's completely legal. Most people wouldn't go shoot themselves in the head with a gun because it's going to hurt really bad and ruin your whole day and blow your brains out. So you wouldn't do it. So just because the government says you can do something doesn't mean that you should and doesn't mean that most rational people, and most people that run businesses are quite rational, even if you don't like them as an individual, they're quite rational when it comes to running a business. You have to be or you go out of business. So if the banks were told you can lend out 90% of your money, but you have to loan out depositors' money, the banks probably wouldn't go to 90%. Why? It doesn't work. Doesn't work. Can't do it. Can't do it. You have to start isolating the money in the institution to lendable and unlendable money. Your checking account uh, money, it comes in, it gets spent, it comes back in again. It comes in, it flows through the system. It flow, it's designed to flow. So all the checking account, money market accounts with, with check writing privileges and all, they're designed so that people can use them to, to pay bills. So there's a, like a balance that a bank could look at over a couple of years and say, you know what, our, our checking account bucket never goes below um, $5 million. Big bank, right? $5 million in the checking account bucket. And sometimes it's as high as, you know, uh, $50 million. But $5 million is a solid floor, man. Even on the, the end of the month before the food stamp deposits come in and everything else, it's it's it's... It's, it's floored at $5 million, right? And I don't know if $50 million is the right upside of that or not, but let's just say the floor is $5 million. So then they could say, you know, if we're going to do a 50% loan, we could take, you know, $2.5 million of that and loan it. But it's a very small piece of, you know, what might be there on a Wednesday versus what might be there on, you know, two days before the end, the, the first day of the new month. And I can only work with that floor and, and, and be comfortable that I'll be able to cover my depositors, if they ask for their money or write a check. I, if the bank doesn't have the money, your check bounces. Understand that, right? Okay, so we got to have that. Then we can look at savings. And we can say savings, people withdraw, people deposit, they transfer, money goes up and down, but it's much more stable. And then we'll have a floor that's a higher percentage of the savings bucket. And we'll say that 
50% of that floor we can loan, right? And then they would say, okay, now, then we have things like certificates of deposit, there's significant penalties, people do take their money out early, but we can say that the floor is much higher and take 50% of that floor. And then we take all that money, and whatever that number is, that's the total amount that the bank can comfortably loan. Then you get your accountants and your, your propeller heads to go through a spreadsheet, look at all the rest of the monies, And they come up with, out of the rest of that floating monies, some piece of that that you can use and float with some relative stability. And then you would operate on a 50% reserve system, and it would probably work. So if the bank was holding st stable deposits of $100 million, and many of these institutions are holding billions, right? But how many of the billions are created dollars versus deposited dollars? Think about that. But let's say they had $100 million dollars. In stable deposits, that was their number. They could loan out a, you know, uh, $50 million dollars in loans, and they would probably be able to cover every depositor in the normal course of business. The only thing that would tip the apple cart would be if everybody wanted their money at the same time. And see, in a banking system, no matter how you run it, if the bank is issuing loans. You can't cover all deposits simultaneously. It's impossible. But it's okay if it's run sanely because a bank is not designed to work that way. If you want your money 100% stable, you need a storage facility, not a bank. You need a safe. That's, that's, that's how it works. If you want to hold a thousand ounces of gold and you don't want it at risk, and you want to always be able to get all thousand ounces, even if everybody else gets all their money at the same time, you need a safe to put it in, not a bank. That's, that's really important to understand. I know I kind of turned that into a mini episode, maybe even half an episode, but I thought it was an important one to cover today. Okay, for uh, those of you that want to know why I'm so heavily uh, favorative of diesel motors, and for those of you that don't think Americans can build a really long-lasting vehicle, I have a story for you to show both sides uh, the error in their judgment. On Well, I should say the error in their judgment, why I feel the way that I do. And those of you that don't think we can build a dependable, long-lasting product in America anymore, the error in your judgment. Uh, Flint-built pickup truck hits major milestone. Flint Township, and a feat that few vehicle owners will ever come close to experiencing, Hugh and Tammy Pennington of Delton were driving along the Chicago Tollway on April 4th when the odometer on their 2006 Chevrolet Silverado truck flipped over to 1 million miles. Error lights started flashing on the dashboard soon after that, and fearing a shutdown, Tammy pulled into the dealership to have the odometer reset. The odometer was back to 15,000 miles by the time the hard-driving Penningtons arrived last Friday at a General Motors Flint assembly plant on Van Slyke Road for a special recognition in honor of the, uh, the folks who built their die-hard truck. The achievement has been verified and documented, said Tom Wickman, manager of GM Communications. Quote, when I look back at the history of our Chevy and GMC products at this plant, I don't think anyone is surprised at the reliability and durability of our trucks. End quote, said Amy Farmer, plant manager of Flint Assembly. With uh, Quote, with two Motor Trend Truck of the Year awards in 2001 and 2011, I'm proud to say Flint Assembly employees have built the best full-size pickup trucks on the road. So we went into selling the trucks and selling their achievements. But I think we should stick to the fact that we have a diesel truck here with a million miles on it. Let me tell you what that means to you if you want to be uh, self-sufficient and self-reliant. If you go find yourself a well-maintained, well-cared-for, with all documentation saying the oil changes were done, that's the big one, diesel pickup truck with 100,000 miles on it, you can buy a $60,000 truck for somewhere between $15,000 and $25,000. That's what I said, a $60,000 truck for $15,000 to $25,000. Why? Because the value of the vehicles goes down rapidly once they become quote-unquote used. So... That would mean that you have a vehicle that properly maintained, taken care of, and you put tires on it, oil changes, and do some basic maintenance on it as it needs it, and occasionally there'll be high-dollar maintenance on a diesel truck. I'm talking a couple thousand dollars or more, occasionally. But it will last another 900,000 miles. Hmm. 900,000 miles. Most people will never drive 900,000 miles in their lives. So that means that if we start 
thinking about what we're doing. Stop worrying about running a car on laptop batteries, Prius. Um, then we could actually buy vehicles as close to or actual lifetime purchases. Just a thought. That's the power of diesel reliability. I'll have a link to this, uh, this article in today's show notes. As I move on to the next one, I do want to state that I didn't just really guarantee you that if you bought a truck that had 100,000 miles on it was well-maintained, you maintained it, you're going to get a million miles out of it. It's possible, though. And I do think that good quality diesel vehicles properly maintained can be much closer to a lifetime purchase for people than the, 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 the low-end consumer crap that we usually drive around today with leases and a concept of I'm always going to have a car payment. Ugh. All right, so sticking with the, uh, the diesel world and uh, thinking about, you know, solutions. And a lot of times I say, you know what, if the government would get out of our face, they just get out of our face and leave us alone, then we would be able to come up with solutions. And people think, Jack, you're too optimistic. The, the problems are too big. There's no way we could solve them. I mean, come on, Jack. There's no way we could solve the fuel crisis, peak oil and all that. I mean, solar panels, that's a nice dream. And even if the Chinese panels were cheaper, we still have all these other things. And there's just no way we could ever solve the energy problem. Well, there's a sophomore in high school... Uh, in Elk River that, uh, well, it's uh, near Pittsburgh that has a solution, a real solution uh, that you could probably do in your backyard because he's doing it in his. Let me read it to you. Elk River sophomore is an algae alchemist. Now, before those of you that already have your preconceived idea about how algae and biodiesel is too expensive, shut your pie hole for a minute Open your ear holes and listen, because you might learn something that there are other ways to do things. Elk River sophomore Josh Wolf has a lofty goal, helping to solve the world's fuel crisis using a humble tool, algae. In the portable garage that serves as a backyard laboratory, he has discovered the application of a very low-level electrical jolt causes algae to release oil. After a couple of days, he skims out, adds a formula of plumbing, cleaner, and antifreeze, and presto, it's biodiesel fuel. The fruits of his labors could be traveling around Elk River on any given day in the diesel tanks of friends' pickup trucks. The 16-year-old, who sometimes talks over his parents' and friends' heads, just struggles to balance his passion with his schoolwork as just a guy who wants to help, he said. Quote, I just like solving problems, end quote, he said. I like this kid. I like people that solve problems. Isn't this kid cool? Creating diesel fuel from algae has been done elsewhere, usually by a process that uses mechanical presses to squeeze oil from dried algae. What's different about Wolf's work is that he uses live algae in a process that keeps plants alive to produce fuel another day. He estimates that his solar-powered process costs about $0.03 cents per gallon of biodiesel, compared with about $25 by the dry and press method. This young man just took a process that produced something for $25 a gallon and now can produce it for $3 a gallon. <laughs> we can't solve problems. Oh, come on, it's too hard. The conversion does produce a byproduct, glycerin. Well, you get this waste, this glycerin waste. You know, what is it, what it says, though. Wolf said he feeds it back to the algae. So the waste that's produced becomes food for the algae crop that you don't kill to produce. See? See? This is a permaculture principle. This is a closed-loop system here, folks. There produce no waste. You can't produce fuel. You can't do it without producing waste. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, let me Let me qualify this. Antifreeze and, what does it say, plumbing? Plumbing cleaner and antifreeze. Making those probably produces some level of waste, but I bet no le nowhere near the level of waste that producing a gallon of diesel fuel from oil produces. Nowhere near the level. So there probably is some waste, and there's probably ways to improve that, and there's probably things that can be done to, uh, to make this work a little bit better. Uh, let me go back to the article, though. Uh, creating diesel fuel from algae, um, I already did that. Uh, last summer, he built a 700-gallon tank out of 2x4s in clear plastic. It produced about 2 gallons a day, he said, much more than the conventional system could produce. 
And uh, Wolf had to remove the car-sized tank from its spot on the city street because of safety concerns. He does understand why. I don't. I don't. I really don't. I don't think 700 gallons of anything would cause any, any safety concerns for anybody. 700 gallons of water with algae in it, if it broke loose in the street, it would go down a storm drain. Government helping out, right? There you go. Uh, I, I guess I could see maybe it being moved or set up in the backyard or whatever. But let's just get to the point. You know, the kid made two gallons of diesel fuel a day from 700 gallons of algae water. How much could we make from a pond? Think about that while I continue. Wolf had to remove the car size. He doesn't, but he still keeps a 30-gallon drum of algae water. The concept grew out of an attempt by Wolf to use algae to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Aha! I have found the first fruits of global warming bullshit. The first positive thing to come from it. This kid wanted to save the polar bears by sequestering carbon, realized that didn't work. Let's make fuel from the carbon sequestering. There we go. So there is a positive spin on global warming. Why now? Cool. I can. I'm actually being serious too. I'm happy about it. But he switched gears when he learned of efforts elsewhere to create biodiesel diesel from algae. He ordered a vial of Bolivian algae, Broctolysis brunei. This isn't the gloppy stuff that accumulates on Minnesota lakes and ponds in August. Why are they talking about Minnesota lakes and his kids from Pittsburgh? I don't know. Bad journalism. Uh, when Wolf holds up a pop bottle of the full light green liquid, the algae is visible in the form of tiny floating specks. Maybe this is a Michigan publication. Yes, it's a Michigan publication. The kid's just in Pittsburgh. That's why it says that. Okay, now it makes sense. He worked on it all summer, and on October night, he greeted his parents' return from evening out with a flaming biodiesel votive. Widespread attention. The project has already garnered international attention. That means he's going to probably get screwed if his lawyer doesn't move fast enough, folks. Wolf has given local and international demonstrations as close as his own Elk River Energy Expo and as far away as Pittsburgh, where he is today presenting his findings at an international science and engineering fair. Oh, okay, so he went to Pittsburgh. He is from Minnesota. I'm sorry I was wrong. The journalist did a great job, and I just missed it. His name has been attached to various awards, too. In March, he was among seven finalists in the 2011 International Algae Competition. His rivals included 140 entries from 40 countries. Many had corporate or university backing. His mom, Kim, remains incredulous. And then there's Josh's little pool out in the street, she said, laughing. Last week, Wolf and his parents spoke with a patent attorney. He's also looking for investors in the project as he, he has funded so far from his allowance. He did this with his allowance. He also has come to an agreement to provide Elk River school buses with biodiesel made from restaurants left over fryer oil, though he's still refining that process. Is algae the answer? Is it possible that someday we could all keep a backyard algae pool and grow fuel for our cars? He's working on it, and work he does as much as 40 hours a day if he can. Does the government know this poor child is working 40 hours a day? Isn't that slave labor or something like that? Shouldn't shouldn't we pass a law that says kids can't work 40? I mean, we already passed laws that said they can't work you know, on farms. So let's let's pass a law that says they can't work 40 hours a week, right? Uh, because listen, he he combine that with his speech team duties, church, family, and choir. How's this kid do this? He believes in what he's doing, folks. That's how he does it. And that doesn't leave a lot of time for schoolwork. Wolf has was asked to present at the International Sustainable World en Energy Engineering Environment Project Olympiad. Ugh, that's a wow. Uh, or I sweep in Houston earlier this month, but he passed so he could focus on school. His parents call. His biology class helps him make important connections in his work, and his teacher, Mike, some name I can't pronounce, has been willing to teach outside the textbook, but there's more to 10th grade than biology. I'm proficient in science, but not necessarily other fields, end quote, Wolf admitted, adding that his grades have suffered as he's focused on his algae. Uh, you can read the rest of the little bit that's left of the article as you want. I want to send some information to this young man right now. Screw the rest of your studies. Keep doing what you're doing. Learn biology and chemistry and do what you love. Basically, yeah, you need some basic, you know, you're, you're going to be fine. And I'm not telling this kid to get F's on the rest of his subjects. I'm telling you, you know what, you don't need, this kid doesn't need university. A university will destroy this child's mind. They'll ruin this kid. They really will. He needs to audit and take classes that suit him for what he wants when he gets out of high school and go on with this. He needs a damn good attorney. This kid could be a billionaire if he if he does things the right way. What's even cooler, he could probably be a billionaire not by making algae fuel. 
But by simply coming up with a product that lets you make your own algae fuel in a large scale, I'm talking about 50, 100 gallons a week. If you could make 50 to 100 gallons of fuel a week at $3 a gallon, what would it do for you? I know a lot of people are going, man, not that long ago we were getting fuel for like $1.50 a gallon or whatever. But what if you made your own? And what if it could be less than $3 a gallon? You know, whenever you prototype something, you've never got all the efficiencies worked out. There's always ways to do more. This kid was with a 700-gallon tank, making two gallons a day. So I'm thinking with a 1,400-gallon tank, we could make four. That's 28 gallons a week. That's more than most people need, isn't it? Isn't it? Really? It doesn't seem like it's that tough to do either. The algae does all the hard work. You just mix some stuff together. Um, if, if somebody put together a kit like this that was a 1000 bucks, and you could buy it once, and the algae reproduces itself, the only thing you'd ever have to buy is some plumbing cleaner and antifreeze to keep the thing going. Would you buy one? I would. I already have two. I already have two diesel vehicles. This is probably just get me to get rid of my one gas vehicle. What's What's more important though than the three dollars a gallon is the sustainability. I don't need anybody anymore. I can make my own fuel. I don't care if it costs. I mean, I can store quite a bit of uh, of antifreeze and plumbing cleaner. That's not hard to do. It's not. I can store a ton of it. And I could be self-sustaining with this for a very long time. It's probably not ready for that yet. I'm jumping the gun here, I'm sure. But if I were this kid, that's where I would be going with it. And I would be patenting the process as well, and I would be selling the technology and licensing the technology. This kid should be filthy rich by the time he's 25, if nobody gets in the way. I'm sure the government will figure out that it's like cruel to... To, to use the algae as slaves or something like that. I don't know what. I'm trying not to be too pessimistic. But like I said earlier, folks, stop waiting for Uncle Sam to take your fish, take your fishing. Get up off the, the, the curb, Johnny, and take yourself fishing. But uh, this is an example of a kid that did just that. He stopped waiting for somebody else to do it, and he started doing it. I think this is an incredible story. Uh, it seems to be well vetted. I know I put out something about a kid that did something really amazing before, and it turned out to be the kid was wrong. Uh, but if this kid's actually making stuff and dumping it in a tank and his, and his output is three bucks a piece, that's as vetted as I need, uh, to see. If it goes in the tank and the vehicle runs, it works. Um, how feasible is this on a large scale? If it does what the kid says it does, it's extremely feasible. And we can even get the electricity from solar. And it's not a lot of electricity. I would love to see things like, how much electricity and, and all, but I'm sure that's the secret sauce. That's probably what this kid is protecting. But let's face it, it's probably not that hard to figure out. I mean, the kid did figure it out. He's 16 years old. I'm not for one minute questioning his intelligence. I would have never even thought to try it. But uh, And maybe he's not the first person that ever did this. I don't know. But I am impressed by it. It does give me help, hope for the future. Real hope, not fake hope, not political hope. Uh, hope in the power of the human mind, in the human will, and the desire to do something good. So uh, let's just call Josh Wolf Hero of the Week. We haven't done that for a long time. Uh, we haven't had an Ask Clown of the Day for a long time or Ask Clown of the Week for a long time either. Uh, but those get boring. But heroes, I'll take all of them I can get. We need more of them out there. So uh, Josh, awesome, awesome, awesome. And if any of you guys can get in touch with this kid... I'd welcome him on the show to talk about his process and learn more about it. But I wanted to end your Monday on a positive note. Uh, a kid making biodiesel for $3 a gallon out of algae with a tank sitting in his backyard with a little bit of antifreeze and plumbing cleaner. That's about as positive as I can do on a Monday. There's a solution to your global fuel problem, at least a solution towards the final solution there. Uh, and with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Shut the 